One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. Welcome to the following on podcast from TalkSport. I'm John Norman, and today bringing you a special show. I'm joined in the studio by the former Chief Selector for England Cricket between 2018 and 2021, Ed Smith, talking about the release of his new book, Making Decisions, Putting the Human Back in the Machine. I'm going to talk to him about Joss Butler, about Sam Curran, about the Barbados Test of 2019, about the World Cup triumph in the same year, uh, as well as some of the other decisions along the way. It's a fascinating read, and um, we'll be going through all the book and plenty more here on the following on podcast. Story of the day. Ed, well, thanks so much for joining me on the following on podcast. Pleasure. Um, Nice to be here. First things first. Well, okay. So I read your book during the third test match uh, between England and South Africa, which, as you can imagine, was, you know, those long, spiralling passages of play didn't really occur at the Oval, did they? I mean, 17 (laughs) wickets. You weren't bored, is the point. Well, I mean, I was looking up, looking down. I was was a bit all over the place. But it's similar with with the book, actually, I felt. Um... It was, to my mind, I mean, I don't know, when you set out to, to write it, I just wonder what you're, what were you aiming for, essentially? Because I suppose, as a cricket journalist, I'm reading it for the cricket, aren't I? I'm reading it for the insight into team selection, maybe some of the uh, the, uh, the the conversations along the way, the passage itself. But actually, the book is, it's not just a cricket book, is it? Mm. It's in part a cricket book, but I'd also say that it's almost a management book. Mm. And also a feeling that it was there was some there was a cathartic element to it as well. It was essentially enabling you to maybe even close the book on a chapter of your life. Would would that be fair? That's very interesting reading. Very interesting reading. First of all, I think the the first two points you make are spot on. It is a cricket book. And it's also not only a cricket book. I think that's uh, fair. You never know exactly how a book's going to turn out, but I think that's a fair summary. I wanted to, you know, write really honestly and clearly about the frameworks that I'd found helpful when I was thinking about selecting England cricket teams. Obviously, in conjunction with other selectors too, but they're not co-authors. It's like it's it's the frameworks I used in my own head, and how you, in particular, how you balance the human element 
every team is a combination of human beings that you want to add up to more than the sum of its parts. That's one thing. And yet also, so there's, a, there's, a, there's an innately human dimension to selection and recruitment, if you like, if you want to call it that. And yet it's also the case that we have more and richer data than ever before in sport today. And I think you'd be mad not to want to have your hands on that if you're in a decision-making role. And I was very lucky that we had a great analysis team led by Nathan Lehman, who's an incredibly smart thinker. And yes, there were times, I think, when England cricket did benefit from the input of algorithms. But the overwhelming message of the book, which starts with a question, how much longer, Ed, until the selection of England cricket teams will be done entirely by an algorithm? My answer is a long, long way off. And in the book, I talk about the ways in which you can't avoid a judgment. I never gave a press conference and said, the data says we've got to pick him, so we're picking him. Or I never said, and I also never said, the scouts say we should pick him, so we're picking him. It's the scouting, the data, what you see with your eyes, where you feel the team might get to on its journey as a collective, how the pieces fit together. And reconciling and weighing all that is always going to come down to a judgment. And that's the central point of the book. So how do you feel having presided over, the, well, having been in position uh, from the period that you that you were with today? Because there's a, there's a lot of players within that English setup that either came through while you were selector or were playing while you were a selector. So they kept their positions, didn't they? Um, so that is, that is in part your decision as well to maintain the status quo. Um, you know, there's, there's quite a few of those in there. Jimmy Anderson, Stuart Broad, I mean, Joe Root, these players were before you, during you and after sure, you. Sure. But from a selection perspective, how do you feel when you look at, at the England team now and it seems as though the work in the background is very similar, admittedly, they haven't replaced. They never replaced your position. They're replacing but look, it today. They're replacing yeah. <laughs> it. Um, but then the results are so well, so, so different, there. aren't they? Yeah, a couple of things there. So, so first of all, you know, they they made the ECB made the decision to get rid of selectors yeah. in spring 2021. It was a difficult period afterwards, and England have made the decision to go back to selection. The system that I describe in the book and the approaches you know that we talk about. It's also the case that this summer, which in Test cricket has been fantastic, they've had a very good head of selection, Rob Key, who's combined the MD role with head of selection. And he has given that independence and that detachment, which I think has helped um, the team to flourish. Secondly, I think with selection, it's a misconception that cricket is like football. I'm always interested in analogies. I learned a lot from football mm. and from American Well, sport. that's evident in the book and something I, I, I want to speak to you about. But carry Please, on. Please, very happy to chat about that but one of the ways in which cricket is different is that there are three different England teams not one there's a test team there's an ODI team and a 2020 team and one of the challenges for a selector whoever that might be or the selection panel or section system is to balance those three teams so that they're all performing pretty well at the same time and actually you know in the course of the three years we talk about in the book that was the case the results were actually pretty similar there's a misconception that the test team wasn't successful or as successful. There wasn't much in it, actually, between mm. the three formats. So that's not easy. And, of course, then, of course, you, you put in the COVID, you know, amplifier effect and the schedule became incredibly complicated. All, balancing those things is always difficult. I think what we've seen this summer is, and I, I was, you know, I'm hugely supportive of, of the England that Rob, Ben and Brendan McCullum are shaping. I think what we've seen is there's always a role for charismatic leadership. And the, the point of the book that I make is that it, it's never selection and not coaching. That's never something I've believed. There's 
many different levers of which one is selection and that's the focus of the book and it was the focus of my job but it's the way it all fits together that's so important and I think you see in actually coming back to that football analogy I think teams that succeed in football often have an alignment between their recruitment strategy and their playing style and the squad needs and when you see teams that add up to less than the sum of their parts or teams that seem to have consistently bad transfer strategies in my opinion it's when there's a non-alignment of the data and recruitment team versus the manager and the needs of the squad. So it's bringing all that together, I think, is a massively important part of managing a sports team or teams. <coughs> there's, so many, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, so it's quite difficult to, to, to keep the narrative thread going. But let's talk about the analogies, because in the book you talk about gaining information or experience from watching Djokovic versus Federer, different styles of game. Um, you talk about the rise of three-pointers in, in the NBA. You talk about walking past a bookstore in Lower Manhattan and picking up a copy of Moneyball. I mean, you talk about the rise of, uh, uh, of uh, Spanish football in terms of you know, their, you know, how, how they change the game, essentially. You talk about Pep Guardiola. But unless I'm mistaken, there didn't seem to be so many examples of where you sat down, looked at cricket and said, you know... Well, this captain did this in the eighties in the county championship, or this team was put together in this way, or this is, is that's that a very is that interesting. Right in that's a very interesting reading, actually. Very, I suppose, partly because when you're in a game, you're immersed in it. Yeah. So maybe you maybe you don't have quite the sense of excitement that you do when you're watching another game, and particularly when you're seeing what seems like a new strategy in another sport, and you think, "My goodness, has the glamour of." of being slightly alien or not your very close experience. Sometimes I talk about um, selection of other cricket teams, but usually as a point of contrast, you're absolutely right. Mm. So an example I would say, so sometimes people say, keep selection simple, keep it really simple. And what they mean is select cricket teams like the great teams used to. That's what they mean when they say keep it simple. And I make the point in the book, that's fine if you've got players in conventional spots, if you've got Hayden, Langer, Ponting, War, War, Martin, Gilchrist, not much reason to diverge from that. You know, what the argument's going to come down to is, is the sixth of those batters, you know, does it, they might drop out of the team and the next brilliant Australian batsman, Darren Lehman's going to come in. But the structure of the team isn't going to change that much because they're all phenomenal players and they, their preferred batting position is where they're batting for Australia. That isn't the situation the England Test team had when I was selector, where the talent distribution was unusual. We had several world-class wicketkeeper batsmen. Johnny Bairstow, Joss Butler, Ben Folks, and others as well. Sam Billings could have played loads of Test matches. We had several terrific all-rounders. Ben Stokes, Chris Wokes, Sam Curran, Moeen Ali, and also Adil Rashid and others who were very handy in lots of different ways. Now, the question is, if you don't have a conventional if you like, talent pool, do you just deny that and say, we're going to do it anyway? We're going to go one at one or two at two or three or three or four at four? Or do you say, hey, on a minute, let's be a little bit more creative here. Let's try and get the most talented players onto the field, even if they're playing in a slightly unusual position. In 2018, which was my first year, you know, probably looking back on it, maybe that was the closest alignment with, you know, my views or whatever. I wouldn't distance myself from any selections that came later, but I think probably looking back, that was the case. We sometimes played three all-rounders and three spinners in Sri Lanka. We sometimes played um, three wicket-keepers. Now, these things look odd, 
they don't look as odd if you spend your whole life looking at what we call depth. Selectors call it depth. You know, basically, what have we got? What's out there? And in the case of England selectors, we start with 80 players who we scout and then you analyse all those 80 and then it comes down, it comes down, it comes down. You look at 30, you look at 25 and then it ends up being a squad of 15 or 12 for a test match in the UK and then an 11. So now all of that brings risk because if you line up in an unconventional way, there's always a chance that even if you believe passionately it's the most likely way to win the game. If it doesn't, people are going to say, look at these guys, too clever by half, too funky. And that sometimes happens. But on balance, I'd always rather do what you believe in, even if it brings a bit of extra risk, rather than play it safe if you don't think it's the optimal strategy. Well, let's talk about Joss Butler then, because that was a big decision that you made in 2018. You made a couple of big decisions, but I'd say that that's probably the biggest one because, you know, you talk about innovation within the book. Um, is there a feeling that innovation is more welcomed? Or did you find, as a selector, when you put forward your ideas for selection, that there was more of an understanding and acceptance for decisions that could be branded as innovative within limited overs cricket, but within test cricket? That's, Would that be fair to say? Very interesting. So I think, very interesting. So I think what you're saying is that the, the default position of yeah. test cricket is more conservative. Yes, and therefore, there, there, there were lots of risks, actually, in the, in the early months. Joss Butler, Sam Curran, who was 19 years old. I know, he turned 20 playing Test playing, cricket. Playing his debut game at Headingley. And he was, yeah, it was his 20th birthday. Yeah. 19 years old when he was picked. And then also Adil Rashid, who we you know brought back into Test cricket, who also, like Joss, wasn't playing any Red Bull cricket at that time. They brought risks from, from our side, but we believed in it and we're glad we did it. And then also the following year, you know, the potentially the biggest decision in the lot, which was to to select Joffre Archer because of the timing of the decision. Because mm. it was the 11th hour. Yeah, I don't think anyone made the case that Joffre wasn't brilliant. No one thought that. But a lot of people, you know, and there's a bit of rewriting of history, a lot of people thought there was a huge risk in making the decision so close to the tournament. We decided it was the right thing to do and he did brilliantly and he is absolutely brilliant. So let's go back to that question. In the book, you know, I call it uninstitutional behaviour, which is a phrase of an investor, David Swenson, which is that, even when you're representing an institution, or a great institution like you know England cricket and, and as a selector, I think your value is when you diverge and also obviously, by definition, improve on conventional wisdom. You're not going to win every time. There can be times when you're worse than conventional wisdom. But if you don't diverge from conventional wisdom, if you just polled all the experts, you know, and then use an average of that expertise and that's your team, that's your eleven. Well, why do you need to pay someone a salary to do that? We can literally get a pollster to do it. You don't have a job anymore if that's what you do. You're a sinecure. If you just ask everyone, they write down what they think, and then you average it all out, and they go, there you go, captain, this is the squad. No point. No point in having the job. Wasting your life. So what you're trying to do, exactly like someone in investment, you're trying to say, when do I perceive value that others don't? When do we perceive value that others don't? And as soon as you diverge from the consensus, it brings upside risk and downside risk might work you believe it will work better than the average but it may of course inevitably sometimes not work now in the case of of Joss Butler you know at that point in time in the three years before if you like I started most of the time England was selecting one wicketkeeper batsman despite the fact they had these plethora of brilliant wicketkeeper batsmen and they were picking a whole array of what I would call next in line batsmen one then the other then the next and the next and the next and none of them were staying in the team it starts with a very simple question. Are you sure you want to do that, guys? 
Then you want to play two of these guys, Johnny Bairstow and Joss Butler. They're both world-class, all-round package cricketers, and the last pick batter is not staying in the team. So why are we doing it? And I asked the question at a big meeting, it was a you know, scouting meeting, and I said, if you're captain of Pakistan, the test match next week, fifth wicket falls, someone's coming out the pavilion steps, would you rather it was these batsmen we're talking about who we might pick the next in line or Joss Butler? Tell me honestly, you're captain of Pakistan. And brilliant coach Andy Flower said to me afterwards, he was a brilliant thinker, Andy, fantastic coach for him. He said, you'd have to be more worried about Joss because you know he can hurt you. And so it transpired that Joss got 50 on his return to the team, having not played Test cricket for a long time. 80 not out and that fantastic win um, ahead of him against Pakistan and played well in that spell. So I believe that there are times when you should take a risk. It's also true, don't take risks for the sake of it. And there are lots of times when the conventional steady thing is the right thing to do. And, you know, great uh, investment thinker Howard Marks said, just because it's a contrarian idea, it's not a good idea to stand in front of a bus. It's not. You know, usually, it's fine. You leave it relatively straightforward. But you have to be trying to find value that other people don't perceive. I- I can completely buy into all that. But I have to say that when I sat at the press conference the day before that test match and England are going in with a number three, Joe Root, I think, who didn't want to bat at three and was more successful at four, of number four and Ollie Pope, who had never batted at four for his county, and then a non-wicket-keeping number seven. So essentially a specialist number seven. One of the phrases you hate and you say, you know, it doesn't make sense, is being too clever for your own... Uh, being too clever by half, essentially. But well, you've rolled together two different games. So Joss came back, and Ollie Pope wasn't playing. Was it in this? Oh, no, was it? Ollie Pope came. Oh, that was the Lord's Test match, the second Test match. That's right. England. Yeah, Joss was recalled. That would have been his fourth Test match in the side, and by which point he was already batting as well as anyone. Secondly, if you look at the results in that period, England won eight Test matches out of nine. So my point is, you know, unconventional worked. And one of the things I look back on uh, and I'm self-critical about, I think when we we picked an unusual-looking team in Barbados in 2019, got smashed, about this, yeah. got smashed. And then there was, then I think the narrative grew at that point. You might have sensed it before that that we were becoming too unconventional. But if you actually look at the results up to that point, they were very, very good. Well, I'm not sure because I, I I think it was slightly unfair of me to mention that. It's not something that I actually even thought about coming into this interview but something just popped into my brain I remember seeing a a press conference that was obviously a couple of tests later than I I remembered but I was in Barbados Um, now again there's so many this this is this is the exceptional thing with the sport that we work in there's so many different strands but Joss Butler um, essentially one of the things you talk about is so with Sam Curran you talk about how when Sam Curran plays, Jimmy Anderson's bowling average drops. Or well, I wouldn't overstress that point because Jimmy Anderson's average has been dropping as he's got older. Of course, because, but, so he's uh, going, but similar. If you but, give it time, by the time the second reprint comes out, yeah, Jimmy will probably average 19. Exactly, yeah. No, so, and I should stress that because I think that the point there 
is a relatively small sample size. But you know, when I wrote the book, I think Sam in my period played twenty one Test matches. I think yeah. he played twenty four now. So it's quite a lot, but yeah, not a yeah, massive. Yeah. And the point is that when there's a point of difference in an attack, including a spin bowler, we know for a fact, using a much bigger sample size, that when a spin bowler is playing the seam bowler's averages improve because the batsman's having to move between facing a fit spin and facing seam. We also see that left arm angle, they, on average, have lower, i.e. better, bowling averages than right arm bowlers because, it's again, they benefit from being unusual. And I think when you're thinking about a, a total bowling attack, that we call it a varied attack, I think there are benefits to having different types of bowler. Release point, like Ollie Robinson, very tall, Sam Curran, left arm swing, you know, whether it's Jack Leach, Moen Ali, Adil Rashid, or sometimes all of them, which was the fantastic spin attack, the leg spin, left arm spin, off spin that we had in, in Sri Lanka in 1-3-0. <laughs> but it's also the case, and let's be let's critique that view. Generally, I think a varied attack brings advantages in nearly all circumstances. However, on really difficult pitches, right arm over hitting the top of off stump is probably going to be good enough. You go back to the Ireland test match when Tim Murtagh and bowled yeah. well for Ireland, Chris Wokes bowled brilliantly for England. In actual fact, you know, Pitching on middle and off and clipping off, or pitching on full stump and hitting middle, as we've just seen at the Oval. Every time, it, yeah. you know what? Just roll that one over, over it, again. Exactly. You know, let's not worry about getting too complicated. But there are lots of Test matches played on flat pitches, and England had come out of you know going back to the, the beginning of the period that the book looks at, seventeen, come out eighteen, of that 17 ashes. 18 ashes. Did that 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 must have helped your cause a little, for want of a better yeah. word. Or, or, or did, just come did from my thinking partly grow out of it. I think a bit of both. I think okay. I remember Alistair Cook said to me. You know, who was actually extremely forthcoming and helpful. He, he was no longer captain, but he was still playing in the first year when I was came in 2018. And he said, on flatter pitches, I think four right arm bowlers and an off spinner. I think yeah, we've seen especially that. Especially if they're bowling around 80 miles. We've 82. seen that now, and it, yeah. it's challenging. You know, <laughs> seen that story. Yeah, so I think there was a sense of that, and that helped. And also, Trevor Bayliss. I mean, one of the things about coaches, and I should stress this. Coaches have such an immersive knowledge of their teams and they often say really insightful things at practice, sort of like off the cuff. I remember Trevor said to me once, something different. You've got to go for something different. And then it actually, you know, that it emboldened me to sort of become very attached to the Sam Curran selection because he had a deep instinct having lived with his team and knowing that they needed something different. Mm. But it also fitted my thinking. So again, that's an example where quite an informal we were on we were on the outfield we were just chatting it wasn't like a structured you know selection meeting and often the most value in those conversations is when you're just shooting the breeze well let's talk about a period of time late 2018 early 2019 this this for somebody like you who likes to essentially uh mix things up a little bit you can put it much better than i but but let me ask you let me ask you this quick question is a batsman is a batter Undroppable after hitting a century? No. I've, okay. I'll tell you why. Go on. Because there are times. Uh, I, well, is there. You think of a particular example, and I'll tell you why I think no. Well, it's such a madly a complex area, but one of the points you make in the book is that you wish you had been stronger in pushing for a six bowler team. Essentially, right? More often, been, but not all the time, because yeah. we know that in England, oh, overseas, you, overseas, I think, than so. in yeah. England. So often, but not always. So England went to Sri Lanka. Johnny Besser gets injured, and Ben Folkes is selected um, as wicketkeeper. Scores a century on debut, and I think it's player of the series. But Johnny comes back for the third Test match. Curran misses out. 
scores a century, right? Injured, yeah. Next test point. match is in Barbados. And this is where I believe you say you wish you'd been stronger or pushed for the six bowler strategy. So I had a look at the team, right, for that Barbados test. Burns, Jennings, opening. Bester at three. Root, Stokes, Butler, Ali, Folks, Curran, Rashid and Anderson. Okay. So who misses out if you push for the, if you have that six bowler strategy? Well, well- I think in that particular test, okay, so the, the particular example, it didn't necessarily demand six bowlers there. I think what we didn't is get the team back. Ba- I didn't, don't think we got the team balance right. You Probably picks, we you could pick. have played four and one rather yeah. than three and two. And obviously what happened in the game was that Anderson and Stokes ended up bowling a, a lot of overs and and it didn't spin as much as we'd expected. And Curran so, played ahead abroad, right? Well, Curran played, as did, as did Adil Rashid and Moen Ali. So, those, if you like, three people played ahead abroad, yeah. four people played ahead abroad. There was an extra batter from, from what, where we lined up in, in the first two tests in Sri Lanka, and then there were also those three other bowlers in Adil and Mo played two spinners, and also Sam Curran. So there are all, so, any so number of th- ways you could have improved it. Well, without, you know, you can't go back and no, say... No, no, of course not. But I think your point is, is very valid which is that great teams, and you know England haven't been in the luxurious position of being able to drop people who just scored 100 very often. So it's a very unusual thing Absolutely. to Absolutely, and it was an emotional century for him as well, yeah. wasn't it? I think with the very, very best teams, you're thinking the All Blacks or that Australian team, mm. there probably were times when people came in you know, did brilliantly and then dropped out again. But I wouldn't get into the specifics of that selection because my point about the six bowler is not that we should have played it in Barbados, is that the template worked when England did it by accident. They did it deliberately in Sri Lanka, and it worked. And then the time when it happens by accident, if you like, is when Ben Stokes is carrying an injury. And sometimes the evidence is he's not going to bowl, and sometimes the medical feedback is he can bowl, but not too much, please. Yeah. And two examples of that were actually the preceding summer when... A GS bowl when when Ben actually ended up bowling very well, but he was carrying a bit of a niggle and he bowled a little bit within himself. He still bowled brilliantly and England secured the series winning against India. In the next test, you know, the oval when Adil bowled those two brilliant balls to to help win the test match, Pant got a great 100 and England finished the series 4-1. And then again in 2020, when there are times, and in 2019 at the oval when Curran plays... Uh, again, and and Stokes doesn't bowl much. I can't remember if he bowled at all or not much. And then also in 2020, when Stokes did some did his usual heroism, and then the question becomes, you know, can he do it again this game as a bowler? And sometimes we had to play an extra all rounder, and a batter Zach Crawley would miss out. Now the amazing thing is, and it, yeah, there's always a possibility that there's randomness and chance in the small sample size, but in nine games or something like that, when when that was the structure. England didn't lose, I think, a 1-7 and drew two. So the question I'm asking with my sort of you know, restless approach and can we do things better is, should we stick with it even when, even when we don't have to? Not in England when it's seeming around because I don't think you need six bowlers. The more, no. the more the ball's doing, the more lateral movement there is, the fewer bowlers you need because it's going to be a shorter game and you're not going to need that. You might even not need a fifth bowler. Um, but when it's flatter and circumstances are harder for seam bowlers, that's when I think variety becomes really handy. And I'm also not sure I'm right, just to be critical. I say explicitly in the book, that re- that question of the six bowlers related to the period under review, those three years when I was around. Mm. Moving forward, if you have different players and you end up with a, 
the players that more closely map a conventional cricket team, like an Australia team of that that famous, then you wouldn't bother with it. You'd have, you know, they often played three seamers, as Andy Flowers England did. They often played three seamers and Graham Swan. Swan could bowl a lot in the first innings without getting, um, without being expensive. And then if he came into the game, then he came into the game as a wicket taker in the second innings. It depends what you've got. And that's actually the central thrust of the book. And I think does transfer, which is that the world is as, is as it is, not as you wish it to be. It's very easy as a pundit, and I've been on that side of it too, to say there must be, you know, how much longer can England keep going with X? Well, the answer is it depends on X is better than the person who might come in. If it doesn't improve the team, don't make the change. And we've seen that this summer. If you look at, I think England did really well to stick with Zach Crawley this summer. Well, I was going to ask you about that because I saw parallels with Keaton Jennings. Would you say that's fair? I think... Not in terms I of the style of play. admiration for Keaton, and I think he's, I think, you know... In the way that the Keaton's team is a very impressive guy. With I think there are similarities. I think, you know, Zach obviously having got a massive 200 when he was very young, most people think he has a very high ceiling. Mm. I thought Keaton Jennings and Joe Denley, who both had long runs in the side when I was selector, I think they did, they held up very well doing an extremely difficult job. The same probably applies to, to Rory Burns, who played pretty much the whole way through. And is the highest of that bunch in terms of his average. 30 is, mm. that's the highest it gets. And not many opposition batsmen have done well. David Warner, what he averaged? Nine in the 2019 yeah. Ashes. One innings. So, the, so I think it's, un- and that's context, isn't it? Mm. It's underestimated how difficult those roles are in England against the Duke ball and great bowlers. You know, we talk about our great bowlers and they are absolutely fantastic. Rabada's not bad either. And Norse Hazelwood and, you know, <laughs> and Cummins, those guys are averaging in the low 20s. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. There truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados. Truly the best place to be a cricket fan. 
So you come in and you bring in certain players. Um, Sam Curran makes his debut. Joss Butler is recalled to the side. Um, ben Folks gets a debut in Sri Lanka. And you and your team, you look at the numbers as, as part of your job and you can see an upturn in numbers for some of the bowlers that are operating alongside Sam. Um, and the, the scores of the players that have been brought in are either good or they're bad. That's quite, e- that's quite easy to see. You can assess their success. One of the... A book I thought would be a fascinating book to write, if anybody wants to write it, is to speak to all 12 or however many there were batting partners of Alistair Cook to find out what he was like to bat with. Can't really do that in any other position, really, but I always found it quite fascinating. A lot of these batters come in and they seem to struggle and then they were they were changed. Anyway, has it got anything to do with Alistair Cook? I don't know, Sir Alistair Cook. But did you look at the form of some of the players who were already in the side. Because if you come in as head selector and then suddenly these four or five players are in the side, rightly or wrongly, people are going to see them as your picks, your men. And you're essentially, um, you know, how successful you are seen as doing your job is going to be based on how successful these players are. And I don't agree with that. But That isn't the way but, we interpreted it. But did the, t- did the team, do you think, did you, do you think some of the players... I use an example of Johnny Bairstow. I mentioned him earlier. I had a look at his stats. Johnny Bairstow, when Josh Butler isn't in the team, 41, he averaged 41. When Josh Butler is in the team, 29. And actually, since you left your position, his average has been 51. He's had a brilliant summer. Um, I don't know Johnny, but at times it seems like he can be quite a complex character, maybe a little intense. Um which is absolutely fair enough. But he seems to have the re- rediscovered the belief within himself, within the team. That's me transposing. So I might be absolute rubbish. Well, let's try but, deal with but that. But do you, do you, you look at that? Away. So first of all, your first point is, you, you, as a, you imply, you as a selector, which is, you know, I totally understand where you're coming from, hmm. will be judged by the players you picked. I don't agree. The job of a selector is to add value to the team. The but job the of a book, selector is to help the team to win more then and the way and them. the way you're going to win more is by providing the team with the arms to achieve better things than what they and could do before. It together. So the other thing is that you know, cricket likes to have debate X v Y. Of I course, think of a selection, yeah. a bad selection it gives us meeting, all a job. A bad, bad selection meeting. I was used to think starts with I don't like X, I like Y, and the other person says I like Y, I don't like yeah, X. Yeah. Hang on a minute, guys. And there are very few of these bad meetings, <laughs> but you know, one hears about them anecdotally. <laughs> A good selection meeting starts with what have we got coming up? What are the strategic priorities? What are the conditions? What are the opposition bringing? What do we need? And by the time you've had those conversations, what, what's our availability? What are our injuries? What's our form? What are the scouting inputs? What's the data? Then you have an informed conversation based on England's needs. If you think about selection in terms of England's needs, that's a different conversation to you're going to be judged by the people you pick. I don't agree with that. So, now the specific question. Johnny's best has been brilliant this summer and everyone's loved it. No one, probably more than me, and I take zero credit for anything on that, right? However, go back to the very beginning. If you ask me, you know, what do I believe, if you like? Before I was involved, England had access to a range of world-class weekkeeper batsmen and they were playing one of them. They were playing Johnny, usually, and they weren't playing Joss Butler or Ben Folkes or Sam Billings or whatever. And the last pick batter was just coming in and out. 
whoever it was, and sometimes it was Wesley, sometimes it was you know, Milan when it came out. I felt there was a strong case for Bairstow playing as a batter sometimes, and either Butler or Folks. Predominantly Butler in my time, now it's Folks. Folks played a certain amount and did well at times as well in the three years we talk about in the book. Now, is that not Rob Key's position now, today? And I think he's right. Johnny, who has a first-class average of 50, could be anything as a test batter. And I hope more than anyone that we see that player because when he's on song, there's no one you'd rather watch than Johnny. And, and you know, he would have played so many games with Joe Root and they both would have raised their bat so many times. They are two brilliant, brilliant batsmen. Um, in actual fact, you know, in, in, in my time, I think statistically the leading test batsman in the period under review for England, purely in cold figures, were Joe Root, Ben Stokes, Johnny Bairstow and Joss Butler. And they're all four of them very, very good batsmen. Um, so the question you, you ask is partly about role clarity, partly about backing people, partly about um, where a, play, a player sees his future. I think one of the things that Rob Key said about Johnny was absolutely spot on, which is that he shouldn't be thinking too much about technique because he's, he's such a talented and expressive player. He shouldn't let technique get in the way. That was a really, really interesting point. Sometimes people spend hours and hours and hours in the media talking about whether someone's you know front foot's an eighth of an inch this way or that way. <laughs> He's Johnny Bairstow. We've seen what he can do. And there's that great line, wasn't there, from Brendan, just go and get your Sudoku and do what you're doing because we're loving watching you. Look, I'm aware that this... I've taken way more of your time than I said I would at the start, but as we wrap up, um, we've got to talk about the World Cup final. I mean, how is it, it possible? We've been trying for over half an hour. We haven't talked about, essentially, one of the greatest days in the history of uh, of English cricket. And, you know, you're you're at the forefront well, it doesn't it didn't feel that way. It felt like I was to the side of the bowler's arm, you know, <laughs> which which I was. But, With James, I mean, but, but, it was an incredible day. Um, obviously, the, the let's talk. You know, the book is obviously partly about risk. In actual fact, uh, the subtitle of the book is putting the human back in the machine. Another one would be, you know, taking risks. Um, now there was a risk in the run-up to the World Cup, which people sometimes forget about in retrospect because things that work out always seem obvious. But a lot of people did mm. raise the question that it was too late in the day to change that team, which was already number one in the world. And it was the 11th hour. The decision was made, which we all believed in strongly to to select Joffre. Um, I remember Owen Morgan, I say it in the book, had a, had a great line before the World Cup. He said, we met up at the Oval during a county game, and he said, every time the game's in the, on the line, Joffre's got the ball in his hand. And it was one of those moments where we kind of looked at each other and I thought... <laughs> anyway, there it is. World Cup final super over. Owen talking to Joffre at the top of his mark. And of course, actually, to some extent, and I, you know, I wouldn't stress the point, but to some extent, the prelude to the super over summarises the book in a way. Because there was lots of evidence that went into the Archer selection. Some of it was quite scientific. You know, trajectory, average speed, comparative analysis drawn from IPL data all that stuff, ball tracking from Hawkeye. But all of that falls flat without the human dimension. Yeah. And Owen being there, being present, being calm, exuding the fact that it was going to be fine. 
and that is the way I came to view it, that there may be scientific strands, there may be times when you can trust the evidence, but there's always a human dimension. And of course, in that moment, two human beings sort it out at the moment. Owen captains brilliantly in that super over as he did throughout the tournament and Joffre delivers England win the World Cup um, and we all everyone there has a day they'll never forget brilliant stuff voice is the invisible ink in communication that's right I think my dad said that like, as usual my dad who's a far better writer than me gets the last word <laughs> well look there's plenty more in the book making decisions putting the human back in the machine um, I mean there's were you really going to drop Sir Alistair Cook for that final test? You'd have to read the book to find out more. Um, and there's 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 plenty we could we could talk well for hours. But uh, you're due on Hawksby and Jacobs. Ed Smith, thank you so much for joining me on Follow On. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you are keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today.